Amen. So a little bit later in this service, uh, I had the privilege of baptizing Grace Girardi. She is a perfect girl. She's perfectly asleep here. She is the daughter of uh, Jenny and Anthony Girardi. She's the little sister of A.J. Girardi. Now you may have noticed that not all Christians baptize their babies. Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Lutheran Christians, among others, baptize babies. But Mennonites and Pentecostals and Baptists, among others, don't baptize babies. Here at HVPC, about half of our new parents present their babies for baptism, and the other half go in for baby dedications or simply no ceremony at all. So I feel as though we are in some kind of middle ground here at this church. There are two basic views regarding baptism for infants or for young children. The first view, which uh, has been the standard practice of the church since at least the second century, is that children of church members uh, are presented for baptism and by that baptism are made part of the visible church. And the second view, which became prominent in the 16th century and which is very common among evangelical Protestants today, is that infants and young children are not to be baptized. Rather, on this view, baptism is a sacrament which is reserved for individuals who have made a public profession of their own faith, something that doesn't usually happen until around the age of seven. Here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church, I've had the pleasure of baptizing many babies, I've had the pleasure of baptizing adolescents, young people who have made their own profession of faith. I've had the pleasure of baptizing adults, converts to Christianity later in life. I've had the baptize, uh, the pleasure of baptizing a woman in her 80s. Now, she had been a believer for decades, but somehow never got around to being baptized. And so we, we took care of her. I've had the pleasure of baptizing a whole family at the same time, father and mother and son. I've even had the pleasure of baptizing my own daughter, Amelia Grace, which is surely my most uh, favorite baptism of all times. As a Presbyterian church, we have our roots in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. At that time, there were individuals, both clergy and lay people, in Holland and in France and in Switzerland and in Germany, who were concerned about some of the practices that had developed in the Roman Catholic Church, and they wanted to reform the church by going back to the teaching of the apostles that we find in the Bible. A couple of months ago, I mentioned Jodocus van Lodenstein, a Dutch Reformed uh, Christian, who coined the phrase that's become a kind of watchword among Presbyterians, quote, the, the church is reformed and is always being reformed according to the word of God. The idea is that the church should constantly look to the scriptures to check its beliefs and to check its religious practices. So during the Reformation in the 16th century, reformers began to adjust their understanding of how the sacrament of baptism works, of how it is a means of God's grace in our lives. But they did not reject infant baptism. In that same period, another group of Christians called Anabaptists did reject infant baptism. 
Those Anabaptists are the spiritual ancestors of the Baptists and the Mennonites that we have today. Like the Reformed Christians, the Anabaptists also hold the scriptures alone as the foundation for their teachings. But on this practice of infant baptism, the two groups disagree. And so that raises the question, why do Presbyterians baptize babies and Anabaptists don't if both groups appeal to the scripture as their authority? All Christians, of course, (coughs) share, I'm hoping my voice holds out, someone else may have to come up here and (coughs) preach this sermon for me. All Christians share the sacrament of baptism in obedience to the command of Jesus. (coughs) Before his ascension into heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples from all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Scripture, however, Jesus never explains how baptism works or even what it is for. Before the Christian era, there were pre-existing traditions of baptisms and various religious washings in the Jewish faith. John the baptizer, who was not a Christian, was famous for baptizing people in the Jordan River. Even to this day, if you convert to Judaism, you will take a dunk in a ritual bath called a mikvah, a kind of baptism. In the New Testament, we have a record of the first generation of the church And the question of infant baptism is not addressed. The Bible does not say, baptize your babies. The Bible does not say, don't baptize your babies. The Bible is silent on this question. And it may be silent because the question had not yet arisen. During the time the New Testament was being written, thousands of people were coming to faith in Christ. They were all converts. And the question of what to do with the children of those converts might not have come up yet. So, when an Anabaptist says, we baptize anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, they certainly are speaking according to Scripture. When individuals come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we see in Scripture that they are then baptized. But when a Reformed Christian says, we baptize anyone who becomes a follower of Jesus, and we also baptize children born to them as well, they are also appealing to Scripture and to the biblical principle of the covenant. In our reading from Genesis this morning, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant is both with him and with his offsprings. The sign of the covenant is circumcision. At the time of the making of the covenant, initially, everyone in Abraham's household, he himself, his servants, and the male children of his servants were all all circumcised. And when new babies were born into this covenant family, when God gave Abraham his son Isaac, those children received the sign of the covenant in their flesh 
on the eighth day. As Reformed Christians, we understand infant baptism to be a sign of the covenant, the Christian version of circumcision. In the Old Testament, God's promises to his covenant people include the children. And in the, sa- the same is true in the New Testament. In the very first Christian sermon preached by the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in the streets of Jerusalem, Peter's altar call is made with these words, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children. Now, let me be clear about one thing. While children of the covenant are included in God's covenant, when those children reach the age of reason and can understand and make decisions for themselves, they are responsible then for making their own conscious choice to remain a part of that covenant. Not every descendant of Abraham remained within the covenant family. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Others went off and worshipped false gods, cutting themselves off from the household of Abraham. Today we will baptize Grace Girardi. That baptism is an external sign that she's a member of the household of God, of God's covenant community. But the day will come when she will choose for herself to trust in Jesus. That's why part of the vows that we will uh, recite today um, include the promise to raise this child to have faith in Jesus. We commit to teaching grace the gospel, to instructing her in the scriptures, and to praying for her, and to showing her by uh, example what the Christian life looks like, so that one day she can stand in front of this congregation or in some, some other congregation and profess her own faith in Jesus Christ. All right. Let me move away from the baptism for a minute. We'll come back to that a little bit later. I want to talk about another pool of water beside the pool of water we have right over here. The pool at Bethesda, which shows up in our gospel reading this morning. The pool of Bethesda was a public swimming pool. And it was surrounded on all sides by covered colonnades which provided shelter from the elements. At the time of our story in the Gospel of John, the pool of Bethesda had become a gathering place for sick and invalid people. The name Bethesda in Hebrew means house of mercy. Invalids gathered at the pool of Bethesda not only because the colonnades offered shelter from the sun and the rain, but also because there was a legend about the healing properties of the water in the pool. Now, I have to insert here a complicated little footnote about the biblical text. If you were following along in your pew Bibles as we were reading the text this morning, you may have noticed that your pew Bible skips from verse 3 to verse 5. So, what happened to verse 4? Well, verse 4 is there if you have the King James translation or if you have any other translation that was completed before the 20th century.
But in modern translations, verse 4 and the last part of verse 3 as well, there's 42 words altogether, end up as a footnote. Now that's because those older translations were actually made from newer copies of the Greek New Testament. And the newer translations were actually made from older copies of the Greek New Testament. Does that make sense to you? What's happened over time is that Bible scholars have found more and more older manuscript, handwritten copies of parts of the Bible. And the older the copy, the more trustworthy it is and the closer it is to the original. The older translations, that's the King James Version, the Luther's German Bible, the Roman Catholic Douay-Rheims Bible, those are all based upon the Greek New Testament published in 1516 in Basel, Switzerland by the Catholic scholar named Erasmus. Now, if you compare any two handwritten copies of a portion of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, for example, there will be minor differences. Sometimes a word will be spelled differently. Sometimes one copyist might uh, skip over a word or maybe write the same word twice. What Erasmus did in preparing his Greek New Testament, was gather up all of the Greek New Testament manuscripts that he could find in and around Basel. And he compared them to each other. Now, Basel is an old city. And there are old churches and old monasteries and old libraries there. And in those places, there are lots of manuscripts of the scriptures. And Erasmus compared these one with another to compile his reading of the New Testament. Since that time, however, scholars have discovered older manuscripts than the ones that Erasmus had available. And what they found is that the older manuscripts, in the older manuscripts, the end of verse 3 and the whole of verse 4 are just not there. And that means that most scholars believe that those 42 words were added later. Most scholars believe that those 42 words are not a part of the original Gospel of John, but were added by a later editor. Now, this isn't some kind of conspiracy to tamper with the Word of God. This is a case of an editorial footnote being included over time into the main text. Those 42 words were added to explain what was going on at the pool of Bethesda. When John wrote his gospel, he didn't need to explain this because everyone understood. But as time passed, it became necessary to explain why all of these invalids hung out next to the pool. And the footnote was written, and over time, it ended up being included into the main text. So let me read for you again the parts that might have been left out in the Bibles or in your hand. Let me begin back in verse 3, which reads this way. In these, the five colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And now begins the 42 words. Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Okay, that's the end of the footnote. Now, whether or not you believe that an angel stirred the waters of the pool of Bethesda, what is clear is that the people at the time that John is writing about thought that an angel stirred the water at the pool of Bethesda. Personally, I don't think that any 
angel stirred this water. And I don't think the Bible says that they did. But I do think that that's what the people at that time believed, that it was a kind of superstition about this pool. And so there they waited, all of these people, day after day, waiting for some kind of miraculous cure. A pool surrounded by a whole colony of invalids. And into this place, Jesus walks. And he sees a man who's been there for a very long time. John tells us that he's been there for 38 years. And Jesus walks up to him and says, Do you want to be healed? How outrageous of a question is that? The man's legs don't work. He's wretchedly poor. He's His home is a mat on a stone pavement beside a public pool. His daily bread is whatever he can beg from people walking by for 38 years. And Jesus has the nerve to ask him, do you want to be healed? Curiously, the man doesn't actually answer Jesus' question. Instead of saying, yes, I want to be healed, or no, I'd rather not be healed, he begins to offer this explanation, or this excuse, for why he has not yet been healed, even after 38 years of living next to a healing pool. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the water when the water stirred, and while I'm going in, someone goes down before me. For 38 years... In 38 years, he never once managed to get into the pool first. In 38 years, he never formed a friendship with someone who would help him get into the pool on time. In 38 years, he never decided to put his mat right next to the edge of the pool so that he could just roll over into the pool when the angel showed up. Do you want to be healed? I had a man in my office... Maybe two weeks ago. A man about my age. He came looking for money. I knew that, of course. But he wouldn't tell me that right up front. Instead, he needed to tell me a story. And it was a very long, hard luck story. Now, let me tell you, I'm a patient man when it comes to listening to people's stories. But this one even taxed my patience. His story began in 1980. The year that he was thrown into prison in Chicago. And then I had to hear about every piece of bad luck that he ever had since that time. Every person who had ever done him wrong. Every narrowly missed opportunity. Every circumstance that was entirely beyond his control. But which had him living this hand-to-mouth existence. Asking people for money. Rather than earning his own way in this world. He was a pitiable creature. And I felt bad for him. But do the math. 1980? That's 36 years ago. Do you want to be healed? Some of you might accuse me of blaming the victim. But let me say this. If you have a persistent pattern of misery in your life, if the same problems keep coming up again and again, If the same conditions continue to remain unresolved in your life, you might want to ask yourself, do I want to be healed? Or 
Have I become comfortable with my little mat here beside the pool? After all, I do have a roof over my head. And people do give me enough money to keep me going. And if I get healed, I'll have to leave this place, which I know so well and which seems like home to me. And I'll have to get a job and I'll have to get a house and I'll have to make my way in the world. And that can be a very iffy proposition. Maybe I better just stay put with what I know best. It could be worse after all. And you know what they say. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I believe all of us have problems that have persisted in our lives for a long time. Maybe we complain about those problems. Maybe we make excuses about those problems. But if you genuinely want to see those problems resolved, if you genuinely want to be healed, then let this story of Jesus and the man at the pool of Bethesda sink into your heart. Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And Jesus is not being a smart aleck. He's asking a question that goes to the heart of this man's problem. And then he tells the man, take up your bed and walk. In other words, the healing requires that this man take personal responsibility and action. It requires also that he walk away from and leave behind the old familiar life. Jesus did not heal him and leave him beside the pool. This man was healed in the act of getting up off of his mat and walking away from the pool. Now maybe that's a word that you need to hear today. Jesus can turn your life around. He can resolve seemingly unresolvable situations. He can heal you. He can fix you. He can fix things that have been broken forever, maybe for 38 years. Last week in our reading of the story of Jesus healing the official son, we saw that biblical faith The kind of faith that actually brings God's healing into our lives has three steps. The first step is that we hear the word of God. The second step is that we believe the word of God. And the third step is that we act on the word of God. Some of you have heard the word of God in your life. Some of you know what God wants you to do. Some of you actually believe the word of God. You've heard it and you know it's true. But that word of God, even if you've heard it and even if you believe it, will not produce life and healing in your life until you're willing also to act. And so my prayer for us this day is that God give us the grace to not only be hearers of the word, which is a great thing, but also to be doers. My prayer for us this day is that God give us the grace so that we might be healed of things that persistently afflict us. All glory to God. Let us pray.
Father God, it is your word that we need this day. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would seal to our hearts the truth of your scriptures. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.